Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. My name is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps a fundraiser perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, meaningful relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong givers. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insights into the hearts, minds, and connections of their donors. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Podcast listeners, the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow is finally back on the schedule. We have several dates confirmed. Since 2014, our team has been providing high-quality one-day roadshows in partnership with nonprofit leaders who want to showcase their space and provide thought-provoking and highly interactive fundraising training in their nonprofit community. Our roadshows have been described by our guests as hands-down the best professional development experience that they have ever been a part of. This experience has been described as challenging assumptions with conversation-inspiring content and new ways of thinking. If you would like to register for one of the upcoming stops on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, just visit the link in the show notes. Hi, Kat. I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent Podcast today. You and I have spent a few minutes uh, getting to know each other a little bit. Uh, You are the founder of the Giant Squid Group, and we're going to be on the platform together on the uh, Responsive Fundraising Roadshow here in a couple of weeks. And so you and I thought, hey, why don't we hop on the podcast, get to know each other, uh, put a little more buzz out into the community about the conversations that we're going to have at that particular event upcoming in Austin. Um, So we'll talk about that for a few minutes. But uh, Catherine, before we uh, start to unravel whatever our topic of conversation is, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners? Thank you so much for having me this morning, Jason. And I'm really excited to be with you in person together in a few weeks. As you said, I'm Kat or Catherine Ashton. I answer to both. Uh, I'm one of three daughters. So just shout in my direction, any name, dog, cat, name, whatever. And I'm likely to answer for better or worse. Uh, My pronouns are she, her. And I do have the absolute privilege of being the founder and CEO of Giant Squid Group. And we work with small and startup nonprofits to help them build their capacity in fundraising and leadership. And we do that through an intersectional feminist and anti-racist lens. So it keeps us busy and exciting day to day. And I'm really excited to be here chatting with you. Okay, Kat, you can't have a company named Giant Squid Group without telling me what the giant squid is. Is there a story behind that or that's just a random thing? Or I'm going to guess there's something deep and meaningful there. It's so. so profoundly deep and meaningful that, you know, you're not even going to believe it. it. I was at a bar 
in my early 20s, like you do, on the north yeah. side of Chicago with my best friend and my fiance. And we were just out drinking and decided, what if we came up with a company? And all I remember of that night, and the reason it's etched so vividly into my brain is we had never gone to that bar before and they had a crock pot full of hot dogs on the bar. And they kept trying to give us hot dogs. And I am a street food aficionado. I will eat just about everything. But even I don't think eating a crock pot of hot dogs from a sketchy dive bar is a good idea. So we said no to the hot dogs. We drank some crappy beer. And somehow in this idea of what what could a company look like, the name giant Squid Group got thrown out there. And it just stuck. And here we are 15 years later. Uh Uh-huh. And it's grown into its own being, its own entity. So that's the deep and profound story. But it has grown to really allow us to have fun as fundraisers, as a company, as entrepreneurs, as grant writers in a field that often doesn't seem super fun. And it allows us to be a little sacrilegious. It allows us to be a little edgy. It allows us to be colorful and bold. And so while the name might not have, you know, too much meaning to it. It really has encompassed something bigger. Yeah. So before we dive into our topic of conversation, I've done a little bit of fundraising in Austin. Um, I know the landscape. I had a former business partner that is from the Austin area and I've had clients in the Austin area, but honestly, because of the pandemic and a myriad of different reasons, this will be the first time that I will have interacted and been in Austin in uh, probably five years uh, so, uh, so what's the, what's the sort of the philanthropic scene look like in Austin in the midst of the, like the pandemic and just, just what's it look like the last couple of years? We're so excited to have you back. You know, I, so I grew up fundraising in Chicago and I moved down to Austin about seven years ago. And mm-hmm. I'd say that the Austin philanthropic scene is getting increasingly collaborative and increasingly close knit which I really uh-huh. love because it is a small city as much as it's growing and it feels like everyone knows each other. And there's a lot of power in that. And I'm seeing more and more intentional collaboration, intentional partnerships, both at the civic level down to the grassroots itty bitty nonprofit level. And yeah. I think it's underscores this very Texas mentality, right? Texans help Texans. Um, regardless of everything else going on in Texas at any point in time, which there's always something (laughs) you cannot walk down the street without a real sense of, of camaraderie and partnership. And so that's definitely been infusing the philanthropic scene. And it's just been so wonderful that no matter what question you have or resource you need or idea you have, you can tap someone and they're going to either know someone and share their resources or show up and help you. And that's everything from, you know, slinging diapers and packing boxes of food during a natural crisis to opportunities like the roadshow where we say, how can we gather the people that need to be at the table to have conversations about the future of Central Texas? Yeah, so Kat, you and I are going to be at Mission Capital. Uh, for our listeners, anybody who's interested in the in the region, perhaps we're going to be, you and I are going to be together on Friday, September 16th for the responsive fundraising roadshow. Uh, that's going to be a lot of fun. And, um, and I'm delighted that, uh, that you and Michelle have agreed to partner with, with, with me on that. Um, but today we like to have, uh, we're going to have a big, big conversation about 
one of the things we always ask our guests to do is come on here with a big idea, bold opinion. Um, oftentimes, I don't know a whole lot about what it is, what it is, and where we're going to go with that. Uh, and that's kind of the fun of what we're doing here. So, uh, what do you got for me? Well, I sat down at my desk a few days ago with all these great ideas that I thought were pretty big and bold, and they were your last four guests. So I guess we're in good company talking about collaboration and partnership. What came to me was how much as fundraisers we are sold that in order to increase our revenue and in order to be better fundraisers, we need the best, brightest, shiniest tool. And the only thing standing in between us and unlimited revenue and better self-care and better professional development and all the other things is the new CRM, the new software, the new this. And how disingenuous and frustrating I find that as a fundraiser who's been doing this for 15 years and is definitely a jack of all trades and how it undermines our real grasp of fundraising as an art and a craft. We have to go back to the basics. We have to keep it simple and we have to stop trying to reinvent the wheel with the latest, shiniest tool. And I say that as someone, I'm a geriatric millennial, a phrase that makes me cringe, And I love the latest, shiniest tool in my business. And I do think there's a lot of opportunities for nonprofits to leverage technology. That's a whole other question. But we can't always rely on the latest, shiniest tool to fundraise, to build relationships, and to tell our stories well. So, Kat, one of the things that I've encountered recently, and I think this is probably the first time I've referenced this, but I'm interested to know if this is sort of the direction you're going. So, Lucy Bernholtz wrote a book recently. She's at Stanford. She wrote a book where she talks about what's called the giving scape and the giving scape is she describes it as sort of this shopping mall of um, giving opportunities and this, this ever increasing way in which we afford our donors um, or, or afford our organizations ways in which to compel our donors to give. And it's a, it's kind of a soft critique. You know, she doesn't, she doesn't go in there like I would with this hard sort of fast, you know, we need to unplug this thing and tear it down mm-hmm. um, and realize that this thing's getting in the way. But one of the things she does talk about is, is that we mistake cat. She says we mistake what we think is a democratizing effect is really just a commoditizing effect that we're just, we're just creating a shopping mall Mm -hmm. of giving opportunities. And the other thing she talks about, Bernholtz talks about, she says, it's, it's really not raising the bottom line. We're not actually raising more money. And so we're sort of fascinated with this myriad of tools and gadgets and ways in which we can compel the donor to give. But, Heck, the, the the bottom line, the the you know, the stubborn two percent of GDP, for example, isn't budging, is what she points out. Right. And I don't think it's compelling people to give more at all. Yeah, and that's what I she basically said. So I love okay, so good. Yes. Um, that's my, her my very yes. unresearched opinion is is holding <laughs> true. And not only yes. is it commoditizing giving, it's it's making it very transactional and taking away from the relationships, right? Which yes. you know, fundraising is all about. And I think a lot of it comes out of this culture of entrepreneurship and startups needing to sell the next big thing, right? And I see in my world, both as a fundraiser and an entrepreneur, so many folks saying, oh, there's an app that's going to help increase giving and we're going to monetize this and we're going to give that. And I'm just sitting there going, no one's going to find it and no one's going to give because of some shiny little game on their phone. And if they do, 
okay, they give five bucks maybe, but is that really changing systems, right? Is that really impacting nonprofits? And so it really waters down the idea of, of philanthropic engagement to something that's, that's kind of meaningless. So yeah. I really hope that, you know, as fundraisers, we can go back to what makes this work. It's relationships. Donors want to give to your cause, not to something bright and shiny. Donors want to give where they're having an impact. And as nonprofit leaders, and hopefully as donors, we want to give where we see organizations are having systemic impact and systemic change, not just because we can click a few buttons on our phone. And not to say that things like, you know, rounding up at the the local supermarket or those sort of things aren't helpful. Like we'll take the money, but it's not fundraising. It's not philanthropy. It's just another very minor source of revenue. And I am so sick of small and startup nonprofits and fundraisers desperately looking for professional development engagement, having to reinvent the wheel themselves, being sold these tools that are not actually going to help. Kat, I remember, uh, so you describe yourself as a, would you say a geriatric? A geriatric millennial. Yes, that's the, I think the technical term. Okay, so if you're a geriatric so, so we don't even have to discuss age uh, because as long as we have these. So if you're a geriatric millennial, I'm on the I'm on the youngest. So I'm 45 years old today. So um, I, I think I'm on the youngest of the Gen X. So there's probably, you know, there's probably what, eight to 10 years between you and I is my guess. Yeah. <laughs> um, so but but one of the things that one of the things about Bernholtz. So you as a geriatric millennial. Remember when you were in middle school going to the shopping mall, remember the, remember how, and, and I think this is some of the insight in her idea that we could sort of, sort of, uh, compel, you know, sort of propel your, your idea a little f- further forward is that the idea of the shopping mall, my teenage kids have not spent much time at the shopping mall. It's not appealing. It's not alluring. <laughs> it's it, so it, true. It, it doesn't even, it doesn't even. And like my, my seven, my now 18 year old daughter recently told me, she says, dad, I don't like to go out to, she doesn't want to go out to eat. And, and if you remember probably when you were a teenager, there, there was, there was shopping malls and going out to restaurants. And I don't, that's I don't all we eat. did. That's all Right. It's it's a consumer behavior. This is my critique on the way that fundraising practices play out in our modern world. Is it's 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 making the assumption that the donor and the consumer are one and the same. I, I, quite frankly, I don't think they are. I don't think they are. Absolutely. And, and, I, and, and I think these tech firms that you're referring to that keep reinventing the wheel, creating choices by which we, you know, we can either choices for us to make or then choices for our donors to make. Shoot, I, I, I don't. I don't think it's I don't think it's helping. I think it's doing more harm than good. I think so too. And I'm laughing about the mall because yeah, what else what else did you do at 13? <laughs> That's all right? we did. That's all that, we did. For anyone but, who grew but, up in but, the greater Chicagoland area, Old Orchard Mall. We how many hours did we spend there? And to your point that it's it's really harming fundraising, I think what it means for a lot of younger fundraisers, amateur fundraisers, fundraisers that are newer in their career, or fundraisers looking to scale, fundraisers whose boards are setting really lofty goals, is they spend more time looking for these magic bullet technologies and trying to implement them 
without the money, without the support, without the technical knowledge, and then just end up maintaining a status quo of constantly chasing our tails with tech that doesn't work. And maybe we've increased by 1% year over year, which is certainly not what all the spam emails I get telling me about the latest, greatest Google ad, this, that, and the other are going to do. And so it just maintains this mediocrity in how we work as fundraisers that is yeah. so detrimental to all of us. Yeah. I like it. Sometimes I, sometimes I very quickly figure out who I could get on the road with and get in, get in a lot of trouble with. Um, so so, Kat, a lot of what I think you're talking about also has a lot to do with – this is something I talk about very consistently here on the podcast – is the way in which expertise is sort of delivered to organizations in our, in our space. You know, what is professional expertise? And a lot of the, um, a lot of the individuals that, that – you know, a lot of our colleagues – we call them colleagues – a lot of our peers – that are in these advisory consulting, whatever sort of roles, a lot of them hail from these types of enterprises that you're talking right. about. And right. so they have a bias to sell the late, the latest, next greatest sort of gadget or gizmo. Absolutely. And I get it. I would love to sell the latest and greatest next gadget or gizmo and make a whole bunch more money and pay my team and give them, yeah. you know, a huge bonus. Sounds great. <laughs> and also it, it just maintains this lack of support for, for fundraisers. Right. And I know you've talked about the need for fundraising professional development and how fundraisers are not taking care of ourselves. And I think that it all boils down to this really dysfunctional microcosm where fundraisers are constantly trying to figure out how to do the basics with no support. And when you Google fundraising support or you go to roadshows, not ours, because ours is going to be perfect, um, or events, it is so easy to be sold to, or to be sold the exact same stuff that you already know. And I know for me, my greatest obstacle when I was fundraising in house was going from, say, a junior grant writer to an associate director of development, that that gap in intermediate fundraising skills felt almost impossible. Because when I was seeking out knowledge, it was very basic. How to write a thank you letter, how to steward your donors, critical, critical knowledge, but knowledge that I was fortunate enough to have learned and and was supported by my boss at the time. But I couldn't find the next level, which was how to functionally run a lean fundraising department if you've got a staff of one or two, you know, how to do it all. How, How do you manage your database and forecast and manage major major donors and track your grants and all of these things if you're one person, how to outsource, how to delegate. And I spent so much time trying to find it and found myself very, very frustrated by the lack of real education for fundraisers and how so much of what I was offered was click here for the bright and shiniest thing, which I knew just enough at that point to not really believe it. And I certainly think there were technologies and things I, I bought and not to hate on technology. Again, I have every software you can think of for Giant Squid Group. I have tried. I love it. But they work for businesses yeah, a little bit more effectively, I think, than they work for nonprofit fundraisers. And I also think that nonprofit fundraisers and nonprofits in general can look at what businesses are doing rather than the latest magic bullet. So that was like 37 ideas. The coffee's kicking in. Earn it all down. Warmed up. Yeah. I'm warmed up. 
Okay, so Kat, in in my first book, I introduced this concept. This I, I said, let's just draw a line in the sand between the initial and every other gift. So you, the initial and the subsequent gift. Yes. And quit quit concerning ourselves with the size of the gift, who's giving, when they're giving, why they're giving, how they're giving, at what you know. But just 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 zero in on the initial and the subsequent gift. And I think I think part of what you're getting at. And I, when I think about this giving scape that uh, Lucy Bernholtz talks about, these are all technologies. These are all apps, platforms that, that are remarkably good at solving our initial gift problems, but very few of them have any way. And I've actually had, I think I've had a, a podcast guest on here, probably a hundred, 150 episodes back with a, with a guy who was quite convinced that, you know, he had the, he was probably one of these latest and greatest tech guys. Um, and I said, solve the subsequent gift problem. Show me how to get to that. I just read it last night. Somebody else was, you know, quoting the latest statistics. 76% of our first time donors will not make a subsequent mm-hmm. gift. They will not renew. It's it's just the, it seems to be like the major problem that we have. And I think when we talk about the shiny gadgets or gizmos, I think they're all remarkable. You know, you walk around the 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 conference, the trade show hall or whatever at the next AFP meeting or whatever, they're all selling gadgets and gizmos that are great at securing that initial gift. But I mean, how many of us, how many of people in our seat, in your seat, my seat, Michelle's seat, standing on platforms like we're going to have at the road show, how many of us need to stand up and say, look, that, that that's not going to ensure you're successful in your job. The initial gift is ultimately not going to get you there. Your boards and your bosses are not going to make an adequate margin on that initial gift. And it's not going to move the needle. And it sure as hell is not going to afford you the opportunity to sit down with the, this is a conversation you probably heard that I had with Mazarine a couple episodes back. It's also, the, the, the these are not platforms that get you that, meaningful gift op, you know, meaningful conversation opportunity to have that conversation with that donor where you're trying to persuade them to have their gift go in a particular direction. Right. I even have experienced being on the donor end of all of these things, whether it's days of giving that are really democratized, which can be very powerful, or these apps or rounded up things where I'll, I'll give in the moment and I don't even know where I've given the next day. Right. Um, you forgot. Right. It was just because it was so it was so transactional that I am like, I, I think I gave someone twenty five dollars. But truly, who? But who, who was, was it? it? Right. And so what that means is if they do ever email me again, which they might, they probably don't. I'm like, who the hell are you? Why are you emailing me? So not only does it not further the conversation, it risks undermining the relationship. And I think our challenge is because. We are so under-resourced as a sector, and particularly fundraisers are so under-resourced and under-supported, and we just accept that fundraisers are going to churn and burn with whatever minimal tools they have. We see so many of these these tools and technologies and latest ideas as, that's it. That's going to solve it. And it doesn't. Instead, we need to start thinking about all the technology that's available, all of the resources that are available as tools to help close the second gift. 
Yeah. Right. How can you get someone in and then leverage the tools you're probably already paying for your email, you know, constant contact, MailChimp, your your donor database to send a really great welcome drip to, to set some reminders, to send them that birthday card. All of those things we talk about in, as stewardship 101 that seems so unattainable because we're so focused on closing those first gifts with shitty retention. Instead, if we cl- focus on closing the second gift. There's tools out there that can make our lives so much easier and free up so much capacity so that we actually can build relationships. And that's what what pains me in the way that we don't necessarily support fundraisers, that fundraisers don't necessarily talk to each other enough and that we're always looking for the magic bullet is we don't look at what we have already and that what we can learn from already to get that 76% of first-time donors to make another gift. So Kat, one of the things that I'm always wrestling with, and I'm and sometimes I'm pretty hard on fundraisers and sometimes I'm not. So it depends on the day and how much coffee I've had and who my client, you know, which client I was working with last week. But I always sort of swing between thinking that a lot of these gadgets and gizmos appeal to fundraisers who ultimately don't want to arrive at that lunch table, who don't want to get to that place of having a conversation with a donor because having that conversation is unpredictable. It doesn't, you know, you don't know where it's going to go. They don't, they don't live in the world. You know, they, they have a whole hell of a lot more money than you do. They live on the other side of town, et cetera, et cetera. And so sometimes I wonder, because you know, as well as I do that the, the work that, that subsequent gift work requires a development of muscles, you know, that mental muscle. And it's almost a physical, I mean, you have to want to be there. And I almost wonder if we're hiding behind all these things. And I almost wonder, I I don't almost, I know I've seen fundraisers gravitate to conferences and exhibit halls and, 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 and all of those, all of those things appeal to them because at the end of the day, Kat, they don't want to be at the lunch table. Mm-hmm. They don't, don't. They don't want to have lunch with that donor because that donor, yeah, the donor doesn't. That that donor doesn't exist in the same world that we do. I think there's a possibility that folks are using tech to hide behind building yeah. that muscle, yeah. and there's definitely, I'm sure, some fundraisers and some donors where you're you're right. And I also think it comes down to a lack of realism in how we position fundraisers. And it probably depends on the org, right? I tend to work with organizations that have a staff of three, right? And so they're very lucky if they have a dedicated development person. Yeah. And so it's pretty disingenuous to say to an ED who's running a $2 million a year nonprofit, you have to go have lunch with all your donors. Like they should. But when are they going to run payroll? When are they going to, you know, do the financial projections? When are they going to finish that grant report? All the other things. And so it really doesn't reward what I would consider best practice fundraising because it takes so much time and energy to do it, quote unquote, right. And so, of course, we want to find simpler ways because it frees up time. We're so overwhelmed. We're so burned out. Um, But you do need to have lunch with that donor, or maybe you can have a zoom meeting. Maybe you can send them a great video, something. But so I think it's using technology rather than a hindrance, a barrier to not putting ourselves out there as a partner to work smarter, right? Because 
in a perfect world, everyone would have a better you know, size staff and we'd all make more money. But with the limited resources we have, why aren't we using technology to work smarter and using it as almost a virtual assistant or, uh, you know, your, your go-to person to help build those relationships? And so I would push back on the idea that folks are hiding behind it as much as they are maybe hoping it can create more capacity than it can because they just don't have enough time in the day to get out to those meetings. Or if they're going to those meetings, do they know what they need to say? Did they have time to prep for the meeting? If they're brand new, their first development director gig, do they know how to make an ask? Has anyone actually sat down and mentored them? Or were they sold a technology that said, do the wealth screening, here's your moves management plan, go make the ask, but they've never actually asked for money before, right? I would much rather have sat down with someone and said, let's practice making the ask. Let's practice overcoming those objections. Let's practice sitting in discomfort with a donor than worrying about their capacity right now. Because you might know that they gave $10 million to their alma mater, but does it really help you over lunch? Yeah, yeah. You know, that's something that's that's something I've been thinking about too. It's that I think that's the in between the lines of your last comment there, the idea of of the, of the information that some of these systems generate. So part of what um, sometimes I flinch by the number of times, and, and I, I usually don't push anyone on this, but there, you know, I hear fundraisers a lot of times saying they love data, right? And I think, well, if you're talking about the latest gadgets and gizmos, these gizmos are designed to create a lot of data, but they're not actually getting you to the place where you're sort of that data is actually doing you any good. It's not, it's not helping you move that relationship along. And what does it matter to know that that donor is, you know, has exponentially more wealth than anybody else in your database. If you're not actually, you know, compelling them to, to write you a check. <laughs> They're not going to give you money unless you cultivate them. Right. Right. If you can't. Right. And I think there's a, I think it's the same accusation and I don't know who I would most accuse this of. Um, but it's, it's that same, you know, there's that, there's that documentary that I watched with my kids, uh, I don't know, six, nine months ago about the accusation that about how, t- uh, not TikTok, but the, the Facebook, how, how it sort of, it sort of lures us in and sort of holds our attention like hostage. And, and I think that's part of what we have to be aware of is that some of these shiny gadgets and gizmos that are, that are that are promising to solve our problems are also designed by companies that know how to exploit our dysfunction. Like these companies know that that was the accusation in the documentary with with with, with regards to Facebook. They know our dysfunctional patterns, and if that executive director, when I've worked, because I've worked with that executive director, that profile of that executive director a lot as well. And and a lot of times what I've wanted to say to that executive director that oftentimes is tough is surrender control. Mm-hmm. And they're usually not very good at this. <laughs> surrender control of whichever gadgets and gizmos you choose to use to highly capable volunteers. And the scope by which you use those things are only to the extent by which your volunteers can actually use them because your time is better used at the lunch table. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm glad we're yelling the same things. You have to get (laughs) off your computer and go talk to people or call them or write them a thank you note or, you know, do whatever. Yeah. And so much of that drive to have data, 
I think, does obfuscate the why. Why do we want the data and what data? And I know in a lot of the coaching that we do, both with grant writing clients and, and with other uh, folks in, in the sector, data is sort of terrifying, right? I have an English degree. I did. Yeah. I taught myself Excel and I, my, most of my Excel skills have come from Googling. And I know I am not alone in that, right? The nonprofit sector is not full of, of STEM graduates for yeah. better or worse. And so data can be kind of terrifying. And so then we try to like over manufacture what we need to set up all of these complex plans to go out there and fundraise with data that's really not helping us in any way, rather than going back to the basics of build the relationship, send the thank you note, make the phone call. Like, oh my God, pick up the phone. I'm a millennial. What? What are we going to do? I don't care. Text them. And it just <laughs> takes away from the bottom line. You know, I will completely retract everything I have said on this podcast the day that one of my clients can easily run a donor retention report from their database. Because I I don't think I have ever been able to run a report that shows me retention rates without an hour of cleanup. And I don't think any one of my clients has. It is so hard to get the accurate data we need. Of course, crap in, crap out. We know that. But we're not able to look at what we really need to do our jobs because we're so bombarded with scaffolding that's not really there, right? It's almost like our leg is broken as a sector. And rather than actually setting it, we're just putting a whole bunch of Band-Aids on it. Maybe the next one will work. I'm reminded, I have a five-year-old daughter. Band-Aids are the solution for everything, right? She would put 37 Paw Patrol Band-Aids on her leg because she has growing pains. And that's so much how I see nonprofit fundraisers desperately trying to gain knowledge without the resources, the time, or the mentorship to actually use them. Okay. You're the first, Kat. I think you're the first guest. I love this. This is our last 10 minutes. Um, I think you're the first guest that has used that term scaffolding in much the same way that I would use it. We oftentimes with our clients talk about, so we have these four frameworks and these four frameworks, when people don't quite grasp what we're doing with them, we, we say, look, this is scaffolding. This is, this is a way for you to begin to design a, design a, an infrastructure and a culture that's actually going to work to your advantage. And you're going to use this as essentially scaffolding to design your, your fundraising operation. Um, and, and I'm, I'm curious to hear your, is that, is that part of the problem is that we have allowed like, like in our scaffolding, there isn't a lot of room for gadgets and gizmos. Mm-hmm. It's just not even in there. Mm-hmm. And I have routinely said when I'm describing our sets of scaffolds um, that um, that it's more of an organizational design that we're we're designing the organization in order to have a highly productive fundraising operation. Is that part of it? Is that is that sort of what we really need to be wrestling with? Is that Fundraisers are starting too early in their career with the assumption that they're going to going to basically construct a fundraising operation on these, uh, you know, on this sort of this ever evolving list of gadgets and gizmos. Is that built into the fundraising 101 that perhaps we need to get out of there? Do you follow what I'm asking? Yeah, yeah. I thought you were going to say I was the first podcast guest to discuss Paw Patrol which also might be true. <laughs> so that's where my brain went. That's, yeah. You know, I, I think this, this idea of building a foundation or building up scaffolding is so, so critical. 
and I would love to see that tech and how we utilize it and the tools we have starts to be more of the conversation and starts to be more of the professional development and learning opportunities and starts to be part of how we measure proficiency and success rather than either offered as a magic bullet or, you know, eschewed as it's the problem, right? How many of us have come into an organization and we hear, oh, well, the last database was terrible. So we just adopted a new one. Yeah, right. But now we don't have any data because we didn't pay anyone to do the migration and now we've corrupted all our historical data, right? I think that everywhere I've ever worked has had that. And we cannot expect any of this tech to exist in a silo. It has to be a tool. And the scaffolding has to absolutely start with the basics of fundraising, relationship building, the capacity of a fundraiser to build those relationships, to manage their time, to be good managers to the people below them. And then the tech can and should be a way for them to work smarter, right? To use that their database to support them and not just be this, this time stuff, this void of data. Or to use tools, you know, like I mentioned, use your email marketing tool as a way to routinely talk to donors, right? Because so many of us do struggle to get out consistent co- communication to our lower level donors. Well, you can set up an email drip. It's it's not rocket science, but it can feel like it when on top of everything else, you're having to teach yourself tech. And so I think it's it's endemic of so many challenges we have as fundraisers. One is, yes, here's this is just going to solve it, but we're not actually going to teach you to do it. So, you know, just enough to feel like this has a lot of potential, but no time or resources to harness the technology we have. And often organizations aren't even willing to pay for the tech. So folks are struggling with these like freemium tools to try to, to fit them in to sort of bolster the scaffold when really they need to be assessing what is this going to do for us? What's my problem? Yeah. Is it donor retention? Why are donors leaving? Is it a lack of communication? Then how can I use these tools to communicate better? They're probably not leaving because you didn't give them a beautiful, shiny end of your giving report. Right. They don't care for their $5 gift. They don't care. <laughs> so what is the problem that you are trying to address? How is it going to help you build a stronger organization across the board? And then how can you find tools to, to support that? And the tools might be really far down the list. I would much rather folks go and, you know, talk to someone that does this, right? And say, oh, this is really what you need. Or get a mentor, get a coach, you know, go go to some things and really learn from each other and stop trying to diagnose significant systems level endemic problems in how we treat philanthropy with, you know, an app. Yeah. And I sound like such a tech hater. And I'm really not. Like, I love the bright and shiny. I just think that... We use it, again, as a Band-Aid, and it just makes fundraisers' lives so much harder. That's a, that, that final thought. Yeah, we can't, right? I mean, the, the, that's, that's what we've talked about a couple of times here very recently is this idea that I think a lot of us in the fundraising space want to wrestle with some of these deeper, more systemic problems, mm-hmm. but we're also so distracted by or sort of consumed by these things that will never give us that margin 
whether it's margin on our own time or it's the margin that we need in, in terms of the relationships with our donors. So as to have those types of conversations, you can't have, you can't persuade a donor to go in some of the directions that, um, you know, I, I think Kat across the, you know, the last probably hundred episodes of this, this podcast that we've had, there is a fundraiser out there who wants to be far more persuasive and, and influential in guiding the decisions that the donors have in ways that, you know, a hundred episodes before that, that we wouldn't have had. And I, and that's really exciting, but that also means you're going to have to have that type of space with the donor. And, and a lot of these platforms, this, this notion of a giving, giving that like the shopping mall that Bernholds describes, yes. that's not going to get you there. Yes, absolutely. With those conversations happening with donors, with institutional funders, with boards, and even with you know executive directors, it really needs to be more of a holistic look at why is there such high attrition of fundraisers? Yeah. Why is this a field that is so willing to burn out talent? Yeah. Why is this a field that is so reluctant to share collaborations, to share resources, to really learn from each other? And why do we silo fundraising as this necessary evil in an organization when it absolutely should be part of the lifeblood of everything the organization is doing? And not, you know, I'm certainly not saying it's because of tech, right? But I am saying that we're putting fundraisers in a place where they're they're desperate. And I know I certainly felt that desperation for help because we are being set up for failure. And that the help we're being given is exacerbating the problem by commoditizing fundraising rather than creating space to go back to the basics and educating us on what really works to create a culture of community-centric fundraising and a culture of philanthropy so that we can breathe and go out there and like burn some shit down. Yeah. 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 I I think, I think, um, yeah, I don't. I don't want to blame tech, but what I do want to do, what, and, and, that, and that's that's sort of the, in a nutshell, what you just said. We can't. It's hard to drop our tools. It's hard to drop our tools. That's you know, it, it our, our professional identities really get wrapped up in the tools that we have in our hands. But a lot of the calls that have been made for change in the last couple of years in the fundraising community and far beyond are going to necessitate that the tools in your hand, or you're going to have to drop some of your tools in order to have that margin to go and do some things a little differently. And, you know, the, the, every time I, every time I have a conversation on here that says we need to persuade a donor to give in a particular way that they're not currently giving or give to something that they're not currently giving to what, what I ultimately hear is, is, that's a that's a conversation of the sort that you and I are having here on the podcast at a minimum. And so if you're not doing this, there's something, you know, there's a there's a roadblock. Because even if you're not at a literal lunch table, if you're not doing what you and I just did, I mean, you and I literally just met here mm-hmm. and we've had a meaningful conversation. We're starting to understand each other, make sense of the direction we might go. And it would only be a, as an outcome of a continued conversation that we're going to be able to achieve some of this. Absolutely. 
Kat, we lose our listeners at about 40 minutes, which is about where we're at. But I want to give you an opportunity to, um, I don't want you to completely pull the cat out of the bag and tell us exactly what you're going to talk about because we don't want to give away the show. But um, what do you have in mind for our guests who are going to join us in Austin in a couple of weeks? And, um, and then I've got one other question for you before we wrap up. I'm going to say the name because I think it's, it's in the roadshow materials and it's not giving it away is we're going to talk about decolonizing grants. Okay. So a little bit of a, a left turn from what we talked about today, but not so much. We're going to talk about, you know, what's problematic in our grant writing and how we can use our little sphere of influence. If you are a grant writer or someone who writes grants to work for that systemic change and those deeper relationships that we just spent the last 40 minutes talking about. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm guessing we're probably going to have a conversation that's going to synchronize, if that's the right word, with a lot of what we've talked about here today. Am I right? That's that's the goal. Yeah, that's the goal. We'll see. We'll see where the the winds take us. Kat, when I have a guest on here who does consulting, who owns a company like yours, I always like to wrap up with the question of there's somebody out there who's listening, perhaps in the uh, perhaps in the grand, big, giant state of Texas, or perhaps right down the street from where you're at there in Austin. Who's that person you'd like to hear from? I oftentimes get follow up for for a myriad of reasons, but usually the people on your side are the ones who are most interested in follow-up. Who's the person you want to hear from today? Absolutely. Well, we work nationally. So any nonprofit leader, whether you're a founder, a development director, a board chair, who wants to work more intentionally through an anti-racist and intersectional feminist lens, to treat your staff better, to raise more money to have an impact, and who's thinking, I just need a little bit of help along the way. Yeah. That's who we want to hear from. Our coaching, I think, is our most powerful asset. And we want to continue to create a community of support for fundraisers. And so if you feel like you need accountability, we have some millennium, millennial tattooed moms swearing at you. That's how we describe ourselves. We are waiting for you. Tattooed arms open. Kat, this has been a great way to uh, introduce ourselves to each other. I've really enjoyed this 45-minute conversation. For our listeners, if you're interested in joining us on the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, we're going to be in Austin on Friday, September 16th, so about two weeks from today, uh, from the time that this conversation airs. We're going to be... The host is Mission Capital, and uh, they're going to be hosting this at Mobile. Uh, Loaves and Fishes Community First Village, which is on Hog Eye Road. If you want some more information about the event, please just check it out in the show notes. And if you want some more information about Giant Squid Group and uh, Catherine's team, just uh, check that out in the show notes as well. Catherine, it has certainly been a pleasure. I look forward to being with you in a couple of weeks. And um, you're always welcome back. Thank you so much, Jason. See you next week. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions 
about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.